Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 42. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com, joined by Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our guest this week is Jonathan Escott, a private investor with an interesting take on Austrian economics and gold. And our very special guest this week is a private investor, Jonathan Escott. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello. Good morning. Good morning, Jonathan. So tell us a bit about yourself and how you got involved in the financial markets. I believe you've been in the markets for quite a long time. Uh, yes, I, I started in London working as a bond dealer for a British merchant bank. You just leave university and at that time the options were try and, you, you become an accountant as your backstop, but if you can't possibly get a job in the machine that is a city, you, you do. So I did. And then you just hope you get stuck on a good desk and, and follow the machine. And then after a year or so in London, I was sent to Hong Kong and then and then went to Sydney and Japan and Canada and all, all over the place. Oh, fantastic. And then, yeah, so it was a very interesting journey. And then ended up um, in Ireland, which is where I am now, where I was the, uh, was the chief executive of... Um, Canadian Investment Bank, which I think was the largest investment firm in Ireland, although people don't know that because the Canadians are very discreet. And about four, four years ago, we, we relocated uh, most of that business to Singapore. And my wife at that stage had understandably had enough of us moving around all the time. And we had, we had teenage boys and I, I was being, being a smart ass. I'd been renting a house here, but at that time, the Irish housing market had I don't think people realise how how much it crashed, but it was a phenomenal crash. That was must have been two thousand or so, was it? Two thousand ten and eleven was. I mean, housing fell. I would say, from just at live experience, seventy five percent. So, the funny thing for people in in London to think about is, you know, you hear if you, you'll never go wrong buying a house in a good street. Like if you're living in the Boltons in Kensington, you'll be fine because everyone there probably owned the houses for years and no debt. But that's just not what happens. Mm. The, the, I mean, it's, it's true all the marginal properties, like the two-bedroom flats built in the middle of nowhere, they, they really went nearly to zero. Wow. But if, yeah. I mean, but the houses on Ellsbury Road, which is a fine road where the embassies are, like 10 million euro houses went down to two. <gasps> two <Dinner>. euros? <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> the, re- the, re- the reason I mention it, I mean, I'm clearly being facetious, but there's someone I think who's done excellent, really sort of sterling service in pointing out, you know, British people's absurd attitude towards property versus, say, equity markets uh, is uh, Merrin Somerset Webb, who's editor in chief of Money Week. And uh, one thing she's, she's tweeted on numerous occasions is she'll, she'll highlight, you know, you know on, typically on the weekend, uh, in the Sunday papers, you get you know, a piece about you know what, what I'm doing with my money, some celebrity or whatever. Yeah. And, and so often, so often it'll be, oh, I don't have any money in the stock market; it's far too risky. I'm I'm all in property instead. Yeah, I've got 15 houses like instead, just in basic case. Basic presumption that property prices can only ever go up. And I think I'm right on this, but Jonathan can probably correct me. My understanding is that after the the great crash of the of basically 1989 onwards in Japan, premium property in Tokyo fell by 99%. No. I think that stat is accurate, but I'm happy to be to be proven wrong. But that's the extent of it. It's like it's like equity risk cubed. Well, I don't know. What, so there's so much in, that comes to my mind when you say this, because I don't know if it's my fault personally, because I lived in Japan as well. And they, they, they've had a, as you, as you say, they had a shocking, shocking crash of, of, of everything except for the bond market. And I, what I find 
difficulties is that you have book learning. So I did economics at university. Just for, you know, I didn't really care about it at all. I just did a, did a degree that seemed to be a good one for someone who hadn't really made their mind up and was very numerate. But everything I was taught was all the main, mainstream options. It's some variation of Keynesianism or some version of monetary policy. And you, you were never taught about all the Austrian stuff that never came up at all, actually. And this is a top UK university. It wasn't a weirdo, a weirdo course. But then when you actually live somewhere like Japan, I was only a couple of years, so I'm not pretending I'm any Japanese expert, but when you live somewhere like that and you look around you, and this is, I was there 2000, 2003, and you see, well, okay, so this is a place where they've had, I, when I left university, it was riding high, and there were books written by people like George Friedman of Stratford about the coming war with Japan. I mean, that man sees everything as a geopolitical war is the only solution. But the, the people appear wealthy. I mean, they, they appear wealthier than we do. And then you look at the GDP per capita, and Japan has actually done better, which is a very little-known thing that Dylan, Dylan Grice helpfully pointed out to me. But then you do see absolute madness, like the, um, the, the, the collapse of private debt was more than offset by the rise of public debt. And I had two, I had two very small children at that time when we lived there, and, and we were renting videos from the Tokyo American Club because we can't watch the local television because it was in Japanese. But then you'd have these videos on like you know, how they're building an airport, because little boys, they love that stuff. And how they were building an airport, they had three choices, and, they, and this show is about the marvels of engineering. But it, they literally chose the one that was, I think, floated on the sea because it was the most expensive to build, so it would be the most <laughs> positive for stimulating the economy. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, and, there's, and there's, there's endless anecdotes. Like another one is you'd be walking, you'd notice there were, it's a very, very built-up place, you know, Blade Runner type thing, but a bit dated. But then you'll see the bottom of these rivers throughout the city. But then the bottom of the rivers seem to be paved with concrete, li literally. And I would ask my friends, well, why, why, why do they do that? And I said, well, it's, it's, you know, it you know, marginally saves water. But, you know, of course, it stimulates things. So we, that's why they, they stimulate the economy by creating jobs for people that lay the concrete to put on the bottom of the river. It's like c completely mad stuff. But people look at you with a straight face going, yeah, that, that makes sense. But you'd be looking at it as an outsider thinking, and then the other thing is just people would all tell you, oh, well, you can't compare what happened in Japan to the rest of the world because it's totally different. And then they'll, they'll list the reasons like, well, Japan has different demographics or they'll come up with something that's different because, of course, every, every individual story is different than another. But the overwhelming impression that scared me into going back to economic textbooks was why, why will this not happen or why could it not happen to us? Because they did do everything they were, they were supposed to do. You know, they did cut rates to zero. They did print money. Maybe they didn't do it quick enough. As, oh, well, they didn't do it fast enough. Is why it didn't work. Okay. Or maybe they didn't spend enough money stimulating the economy. But that, that, you can't really say that about Japan because they spent ridiculous sums on pointless projects. And so then it makes you really go back to square one going, Jesus, this is, um, okay, it's a little bit of an extreme version of what the West is, is doing. But why? I, and the same with Ireland. I'm living here where it looks, I'm English, obviously, but it looks very much like England. And they had a phenomenal property crash. And you look at your friends in London saying, I'm not trying to frighten you guys, but I wouldn't be too confident that this, that something of a maybe not as qu quite a dramatic magnitude could happen in the UK. Like, why, why couldn't it happen in the UK? And no one has a good answer. I just point to, well, Ireland's different because it's, um, they have the euro. So, like, okay, that, oh. that is true. But it's, you know, the, the multiples, the metrics, the earnings to, I mean, the, the salaries in Ireland are second highest, I think, in, in Europe still. Yeah. Rents didn't really fall amazingly, but the house prices still fell. 
75 percent and they've got de the demographics are better here like there's lots of reasons you'd imagine it, it it shouldn't have happened here that aren't as supportive in in london but you do and i'm not i'm not saying i i'm negative on london property but i, I do fear that people don't give enough weight to the probability that something similar could could easily happen and it wouldn't really be that surprising but let's just say there's been plenty of warnings, haven't there? I mean, there was the um, 92 recession, 87, 92 recession. Then there was obviously the the dot-com collapse in 2000, create a bit of a wobble in in property, but not too much. And then, of course, there was the 2007, 2008 crisis that you mentioned. So I, I think the problem with it, Jonathan, is most people look at that as a positive and say, well, it went down very aggressively, but it always goes back up. And that's their reason for wanting to hold it for the long term. Um, but I think that's the problem with what happened in Japan. You had a massive asset bubble, uh, which eventually imploded. And because it was the um, the investments were so incestuous, then when everything went down, there was, there was no method of, um, there was no way to diversify because everything kind of came down together. And like you said, the only thing that went up was the bond market because it, it was literally just one, one big position. And I fear well, that, I, that that was the position sorry, that we're, sorry, I just think that's the position yeah. we're in now at the moment without realizing it, or maybe a few people do realize it, but the my, majority my don't. Favorite, my favorite uh, Japanese anecdote is from a, a letter to the FT that a Japanese gentleman wrote probably about 10 years ago now. And he said, you know, basically, it's really ironic that you guys have been telling us how to do it. And basically, in his words, it's something like uh, the, the, the hard reality is that if you have a massive property crash, you have no alternative but, quote, years of economic indignity, unquote. And it's, it's like it doesn't matter what you do, whether you cut rates, whether you stimulate you know, X, Y, Z, as sort of Jonathan's alluded. But the, the bottom line is that's it. You're stuffed. Um and it's, it's, I think, maybe the most dangerous thing we've seen over the last few years is, is effectively reflection of the fact that politicians feel obligated to do things when they don't necessarily know what they're doing. Yeah. Well, uh, well can, I, can, I push, yeah. can I push back a little bit there? Because yeah. I want to have a fight with Tim just for fun, even if I don't really, if I don't, want, <laughs> if I don't believe what I'm about oh, to say. Oh, hang on. Sorry, but, we've, got, we've got someone coming on from the FT who wants to join in. It's Martin Wolf. It's Martin Wolf. <laughs> oh, so... Okay, now another segue. So I abused my position in my old job because it, it, it added... You abused, you, you abused your what? <laughs> Stop. So, so because I, I morphed into this... I went too, too deep into the Austrian, Austrian economics uh, uh, thing. And during the crisis I was, when I was living here, I, I started engaging Martin Wolf personally. And we started having these back and forth and emails. So I was trying to bring him to... Because, you know, a lot of what he was saying is like, there's no options, what do we do? And I was going, yeah, so this, this is a, you'd start leading him down the road of may, maybe the response isn't to do the, the, the usual spend money or print money or cut rates or all the rest of it. And maybe try to nudge him in the direction of the whole Austrian thing, you know, just in a, the problem with a lot of Austrians is not a lovely crowd on the whole. I'm being very patronizing now, but most of them have no, they have no real live, live under fire um, experience in financial markets. So they almost shouldn't be allowed to be close to any financial advice because they just they realize there's a problem with the money system as a whole they have no idea how to handicap it versus everything else and they just tend to run to gold or, or panic about immediate hyperinflation dollar collapse and all the usual lists but the thing is we've we've had governments fiddling with our money system forever and the world 
still moves on, you know. You, but he, he just, uh, and at the end of the day, he said, so we should just do nothing. Uh, he said, he said, it's a capitulation position. And he said, you, you can't just do nothing. And he, to your point, he, you, he, they have this action problem. That is, they just can't imagine that the solutions do nothing. And then to your point, Tim, about property, something that's not written about nearly enough, obviously, by people like Paul Krugman, is that Ireland, they, they were, they, the poor, poor buggers, they're a small country on the edge of Europe. They had European interest rates in a country that, in my view, should have had UK plus levels. So they borrowed far too much and they saved too little. And their prop, all the asset prices backed by the debt went absolutely bananas. And when the property market crashed here, the EU's not going to change their entire policy for one country. So you had a real, like I would say, an Austrian moment for this country where they, they actually had austerity, proper austerity, cutting public sector pay. I mean, not just a, a slower rate, slower, slower pace of increase, the real cuts. You saw property prices fall, as I mentioned, 75%. And now here we are several years later. I know Ireland's a different story because they have a lot of foreign multinationals and all that. But I think it's the fastest growing country in Europe, or the number one, number two, but, and the property market's recovering hard. So you have had a, a, a you know, fantastic crash, but the important point is relative prices have adjusted by themselves without any intervention from central banks. And, the, and the, the local banks have changed their lending criteria now, so to the point that they are now lending, like they did in the UK in the early 90s, like very old school, like three times salary, you've got to have a fat deposit. They don't lend. It's very much more traditional. So you, you can have a reset, and it can solve itself quite quickly without monetary or fiscal stimulus. As we, and this is a live – I'm living in a country where there's a live example, and no one talks about it. Well, how did you get into the Austrian um, stuff, Jonathan? Because – uh, from my perspective, I was lucky enough to sort of stumble on it quite possibly via actually yourself back in around 2000, 2001. Um, but, but from my experience, it's, it's like the best kept economic secret in the world because it's, it's just not taught anywhere. So, you, you know, Gollum, the character in um, Lord of the Rings. Yeah, not personally. And, no. <laughs> so, you, so this is what I'm about to say sounds pretentious and, I, and I, I, it, I don't mean it at all like that but I, I almost think the Austrian theory is a bit like that creature Gollum and the ring you, you almost don't want to, to learn about it from most people because what so I, I got into it because when I was living in Japan as I mentioned earlier I just saw around me what I thought was a living at least a living very strong challenge to all the normal economics I've, I've, I've been taught as I mentioned it to a normal UK university got taught all the normal stuff, but I just thought, well, this is just, it's plainly not working. It's not just not working, it's anti-working. It's just that the thing, even though the GDP cap is doing all right, but the solutions are not doing what they are, uh, they were supposed to do, right? And it's not sustainable. So I, I fell across a book um, or an article, I think it's Murray Rothbard called What Has Government Done to Our Money? Mm. I think that's what it's called. And it's pretty simple and it's very easy. He writes very well. He is very much in the extreme end of it. So I'm not saying you have to agree with everything, but it's, very, it's a thought experiment at the very least. It's well worth reading some of his stuff. And it just started me, it just started me thinking, like, yeah, because, you know, we accept free markets are great, and you shouldn't have, let's say, oil price being fixed by OPEC, because you know if you fix prices too high or too low, it, it's that, that's one step thinking. The second step is you're going to have a, you know, a supplier, a demand response, and no one ever thinks about And Venezuela today is a living example of what happens when you – you keep trying to tinker with prices or supply in different areas, it, it eventually breaks. But then you think, well, 
why is it why is it okay to have a room full of let's Ludwig von Mises, who's the kind of in my mind the father of the Austrian school, if he as he said, let's assume the best intentions. Let's not be mean and think Alan Greenspan's wicked. Let's pretend they're all saints and doing the very best. Even if they have the best will in the world, how could a room full of a few guys know what the correct interest rate is supposed to be? How, how do they know? And why should they set it? Why shouldn't the market, as with everything, set the price of things? And, there, and a point that he made that really hit me was, he said money is more important than everything else in the sense that if you think about it, money is half of all transactions. It's the other side of you know, if you think about anything, you trade, you don't do barter anymore. So when you buy or sell anything, you, you're doing it with, with money. So that thing, half of nearly all transactions, let's say, is made with something that the price of which interest rates, at the short end, are determined by well-meaning bureaucrats. He's saying, I mean, just think about that. And those bureaucrats are elected by governments who are the largest, as a class, the largest debtors in the world. So whether you call them independent or not, they're, they're never going to hire an Austrian central bank person of of course they wouldn't a bit like it's a bit like a priest being asked to ha have an atheist give the sermon i mean they, you won't you won't be invited into the room because you, you just ideologically disagree and then i fell down the whole worry hole and the, at the time it was very self-confirming because between 2000 and 2003 stock market had a big crash as we know and if you had the benefit of a Bloomberg machine, which I did, you can use a function called FSRC, Fund Search. And you just, and at that time, I, I was earning quite a bit of money for the job because, as you know, investment bankers are overpaid for what they do, which, again, is actually what you'd expect from the Austrian School of Economics, where the people closest to the money creation process, even if you don't realize why, that they will be the beneficiaries of that new money before everybody else gets to realize that it is that they are benefiting at the expense of the general debasement of the money for everybody else. I didn't know all that at the time, but I started to figure it out. And then you saw the funds that did the best between 2000 and 2003 tended to be gold funds. So that's not really a judgment call if you're in gold and went up, sure. But that got me looking at the gold community and also the value funds. It's the value investing guys. And then I came across people like Sean Corrigan, probably one of the smartest people I've, I've ever met. Um, I think he's been on your show before as well. He has, yep. yes. Um, such an, un I, such an, un I don't know if he's listening to this, but it's such an under, under, under yeah, underly utilized mind. It's um, crime, but uh, yeah, and then, then, then you fell into finding this whole uh, treasure trove of these investors and funds, and a guy in Switzerland that that, uh, that you and I know, who I think is the closest thing to a real Swiss gnome that you can you can find. End up being on his fund board as a director. Very good friends. And ended up getting very deep into the whole gold thing, but um, and what one part that was quite fun was Italian job. Like he, some, some of the gold is stored, like because some of these gold guys they're worried about the, the safety of gold in an ETF even. So they want to physically hold the gold. So he ended up storing the gold in the former Swiss National Bank's um, basement in I think Lausanne. And I went to audit that. It's quite a highlight of my gold bug <laughs> career. So you're literally in a basement in this huge room where there's a lorry-sized elevators that take you underground. It's really cool to see it, but you have these lovely kind of Asterix, Nobelix kind of Swiss gnomes down there living in, living in the dark, and you wander around counting the gold. And the depressing thing is when you look at the gold on the shelves, there's not, like, in your mind, you have Fort Knox and those movies, but there's just, there's not a lot. I mean, it sounds so simple, but I think it's only one or two Olympic-sized swimming pools full of gold would be... Uh, the sum of all the gold ever mined in aggregate in history. Yeah. That's it. 
And if you look at, I think, platinum, it's, 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 ama it's amazing. Like, it's hardly anything. It's just a very small physical space of all, all the material ever mined. But the problem with that gold crowd is, and I got closer to it than I think you, you, anyone really can from the outside, is, is there is something about it, like the Gollum thing, that people start to just look at Zero Hedge or Real Vision or just look for confirming evidence in the news about how things are about to go wrong any minute now, Trump's election or Brexit or whatever you can think of. But there's, there's always been negative news throughout history. There's always the, been but, something but the, more about. But the narrative takes over is effectively what you're saying. The narrative becomes absolutely. manifest. And if you think about it, Tim, none of them. And, and the, the benefit that is meant I can take the mickey out of investment bankers as well as anybody. But there are there are definite benefits. You have the benefit of fantastic training. They're very, they, don't laugh, I work for a Canadian one, so maybe I was biased, but they're very well run institutions as a, as a class. And you are also, you are marked to market. So that, and you really internalize that. So people cannot come up with the theories and stories, but at the end of the day, if you're wrong for long enough, or at least, sorry, if the market is differing from what you think for long enough, at some point, sure, short term, you know, you, you need to be patient and all the rest of it, I get that. But if it's several years and you're still, never sold an ounce of gold and it's collapsed and stocks have doubled or tripled, you know, at some point you have to say, guys, that was an error, right? It's just, a, I mean, if, if the timeline is allowed to extend infinitely, and I'm reminded of a Doug Casey, who's a, a gold guy, interview on YouTube at the peak of the gold boom in 1981, I think, it's worth looking at for any gold bugs that might listen to this, because it'll, it'll, it'll humble you, because if you watch that and imagine you were alive in 81 with some money at that time, I I wonder whether you would have followed his advice. And he was on the most popular talk show in the States giving advice about his book and about why you have to buy gold and sell everything else because, you know, the coming hyperinflation. And, and I just thought, yeah, guys, the relative value between gold and equities is fantastic. Well, it was a few years ago to get out of gold and, and start moving into other things. And it's almost like you're breaking the religious oath. They, there's a lot of people, sadly... I became quite ostracized from people who were formerly my, I thought, good friends, sadly, who just thought I didn't, didn't, didn't believe I was too short-term, I was too infected with, um, in my investment banking world. And it's like, well, not, not really. I just think, you guys, you were right. You've had, your, you've had your Austrian moment. But I think they, the problem, I think, is they, they almost take a moral position, which I understand and, and sympathize with, that they want the whole thing to completely collapse and then somehow some version of a gold standard comes back. But I think that's just ludicrous. That is not going to happen. That'll be the last thing any government official will ever make happen. That's so quite you're going to be living in this. Sorry. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say that's, that's, that's quite an interesting position because I think what you're, what you're basically saying is that your kind of Austrian light or your, your you know, correct me if I'm, if I'm reading this wrong, but I think... You're saying that you are an Austrian economist and you you like the Austrian style, but that doesn't mean that you won't um, just hold gold and you know batten down the hatches and just wait for this big collapse. You're 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 going to move in and out of assets as you see fit. If you think Pragma that pra pragmatic Austrian, perhaps. would that would that be correct? Because I'm not I'm not sure whether I, I thought you were Austrian Austrian, but I, I can see that obviously you're not. Would that be fair? Oh, hang on a second. That sounds like a new special club, Austrian, Austrian. <laughs> yeah, like full Austrian, like, as opposed to like, uh, you know, so Austrian I, light. So, 
so Tim will confirm I'm a bit of a health nut as well. I love all my health exercise and I love all the fads that come and go. But I oh, think you're, you're like my um, with... you're like my media recommendation then. But yeah, we'll, we'll get to that oh, later. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a lot of these things, it's so if you pick a, a complex area like economics or how to get strong or what you're supposed to eat or what religion you want to believe in or not believe in, um, you know, you can start reading books. And if you want to, let's say, get excited about nutrition, you can get into the paleo diet and then you can get really into it and read books and have your own special group of scientists. You choose to believe them and yeah. not the vegans. And you get really, at the end of the day, you, you come out of the other end of it. Hopefully you come out of the other end, like the Austrian thing. And you realize that the conclusion is actually old fashioned, simple, common sense. And, you know, so for example, you just eat food that your grandparents would recognize. End of story. I think, I mean, yeah. that, 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 for example, then economics, like just, just don't, don't spend more than you take in consistently. Save a bit in the good times and, uh, you know, to, to help yourself in the bad times. And, and, but only people like Paul Kruger and those guys will tell you that, no, that's, the, that's a fallacy. The household savings fallacy, whatever it is, doesn't work on an aggregate level. And they come with all those complicated theories, but it's just blindingly obvious that we don't have a room full of men and women deciding the price of money. How do they know? I mean, even if they weren't biased, what, what it should be. So, yeah, so and, they, w- they wouldn't necessarily know, but then how, what, what do you do? What's, what's, the, what's the answer to it, ideally? Well, so this, so this is where, so I will, this is where what I was, my, my, my main problem in my own mind, and I'm very open to any helpful suggestions yourselves, I, I think ideally you, you, you don't have a central bank or, or you let the market just solve its own monetary system itself. I don't think Tim like, would disagree with that at all. Uh, but the, not, but the not problem that I is, would either. if you're an Austrian, you, should, you let the let the market come up with a solution. Because I don't, I don't, I'm just one guy. I can say what I think might be right, but it's not it's not something I can tell you. It's something that needs to emerge because it's something that is needed and it will be solved. And the problem is, okay, fine, but how do you get there from here? Like there's an Irish joke, isn't there, about if a guy gets to a crossing and uh, he, doesn't know where he, he doesn't know how to get to his destination. I asked the Irish chap on the crossing, I'm looking to get to, you know, Knock Barry. How do I get there? How do I get there? And the guy goes, oh, well, if I was wanting to get to Knock Barry, I wouldn't be starting here. Yeah. So I don't think it's more like a tanker. So I would be much more pragmatic. I would be more slowly nudging the central bank into just slowing the growth of credit, slowing the growth of money supply very gradually over many years. So because everyone needs to get accustomed to it because general deflation is considered to be bad because people think deflation of the stuff they own that they want to go up. So they don't, for example, they don't want the houses to go down, but they, and they don't, and they want the, they don't want the, they don't want the stuff they buy to go up in price. It's confusing. It's more of a relative price uh, issue. So for example, Queen Victoria when she was alive for a very long period of time, the gold sovereign, which was gold was money in her lifetime. And she was alive during the large part of the industrial revolution, one of the greatest leaps forward in real growth in mankind's history. I think the, the value of a gold sovereign was worth more at her death than at her birth. As in there'd been, there'd been, gen, there'd been deflation, but of a good deflation, like money bought more, at her death than it did at her birth, the same unit. But people are told today, well, you, 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 we have to, if you don't grow the money supply, there'll be no real growth. But they're confusing nominal with real. That, that's one of the deepest insights of the whole Austrian thing. 
But yeah. the problem is if you've been grown up in an environment like we have for my entire life, I was born in 1971, Bretton Woods is timely. So the whole period has been one where people have normalized and their expectations have become such that you expect to see nominal growth of everything. So if they now just suddenly didn't see that, it would be a psychological problem. So people do need to renormalize. But the problem with this, this line of thought now, guys, is it's, 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 this is where Austrians, this is why I start to break company with them because you now start getting discussions that are very, very academic because it's not going to happen. Well, that's, so we that's, in that's, world... a, that's interesting, Jonathan. Yeah. That's actually quite a big statement because what in, in some ways, I mean, let, let me just give you a bit of background about me. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not an Austrian. I'm not an economist in any way, shape or form. But I like to listen to, as you say, different arguments about um, how things work. And then I make my own mind up. But uh, my background's always been technical. The price is the price. It's either going up or going down. In early 2000s, I saw a big gold bull market because everybody hated it. And then towards 2011, when you know you were seeing adverts on a daily basis to buy gold, it seemed like that was the top. Um, you know, gold will go up, stocks will go up, but they'll also go down. So will property, so will everything. And and we're in a huge cycle that's much bigger than anybody's lifetime. So nobody seems to really learn anything um, because they're only ever dealing with the current time frame with which they're in. So they've never seen, you know, a property, property markets go down for any considerable period of time, only just short you know, crashes and then recoveries. They've never seen deflation, so they're not set up for it. So they're expecting no deflation. They think Japan was an anomaly because it didn't happen to them, but it, it could do. Now, in a week when the market, when the S&P, as we've been saying, is has been ripe for a correction to fall in line with everything else, this is a bit of a wake-up call that we could be at the beginning of something absolutely massive. And I know I've been saying this for a while, but... The, the evidence in the market is right there. And I think um, you can look at this and extrapolate it out and say, what will happen next? And if that happens, how do you protect yourself? And I think that's a good, that's a good question to ask, whether you're an, econo- an Austrian economist or, or, or somebody else. There is a chance of a whole-scale Japanese-style deflationary collapse, possibly followed by an inflationary boom like when money just goes to nothing like we've never seen before there's a very good chance that the euro in fact i would say it's a done deal that the euro is going to break up now what on earth is going to happen then um there's going to be complete chaos within the banking system right across europe um to say that that's not going to happen and it's got nothing to do with trump or anything else this has been building up since the 90s when the euro was put together it, it is. I, I don't know. I think that's that's missing the evidence that's right in front of us. And and you know, ja- Italy is creaking as we speak, but has been for a very long time. It's just that they've been creaking on euros on the euros money, if you like, and being bailed out by Europe and the European uh, central banks' low interest rates, as opposed to just having their their lira, you know. Uh, inflate away and and uh, you know make everything cheaper to rebalance their economy. That's why they got forty percent youth unemployment there. So it, it seems like the the system just cannot work. Everybody is in debt. The governments are in debt. The private households are in debt. The companies are in debt. Everybody's just in debt. And when you get a when you get a correction in that environment, it can't be a small one. So what what's going to happen next? That's that's how I see it. Anyways, whether you're an Austrian technical or anything else. So I, a really good friend of mine who lives in Scotland. He's very private, so I'm not mentioning his name. He's, uh, he, he retired very early and has started his own private fund. And 
and seeing him next week. And he, I, I, I said something very similar to what you just said there to him a few years ago. And while well, we were visiting Dublin, and he said to me, he, he nodded and said, listen, I'm very sympathetic with everything you just said there. And he just said to me this one line that really got, hit me in the gut. He said, now what do I, what do, I do? So, so I, yeah, I, I agree with a lot of your worries, that, that at least, the very least, that all the things you just said there are not given enough weight in the probabilities that people need to think about. They just don't give it enough weight. And he said, but, but what do I do with that information, Jonathan, as an investor? And so the problem is you, you, either, you either start thinking, as has been the case, I mean, you know, the, the, the semi-perma bear guys, Will be, they'll be nitpicking every damn data release saying, oh, China, you wait, China's going to crash. Like Carl Bass, oh, you wait and see, China's going to crash any day now. But you think, the thing is, the guy's been saying that forever. And then the same with the guys nitpicking every, every improvement in U.S. employment data. Oh, it's not proper employment because, and they'll pick it apart. But, you know, the fact is, the trend line is, it, it, the unemployment's lowest it's been for bloody ages. So, roughly speaking, and is, is it stable? Is it, is it built on debt? And how, if the whole thing's built on debt, you know, the PE of the PE ratio is being goosed by a higher total debt level, so it's not reliable, therefore you can't build in your discount of cash, blah, blah. So long story short, I came to the conclusion, luckily, in early 2000s with this whole thing, that if you look at traditional investing, the, the class that's done the best over time is, is, is value investing, which you guys know well. But then given my trading background, I'm, I'm not allergic to you know, the quantitative stuff at all. That's what I, I did some of that. But the trend followers are, if you, if you look in the non-traditional investing space, quantitative old-fashioned trend following is it's one of those things that I think Tim's mentioned before. There's a fund that I, I know well has been around since the late 90s. And he's compounded, I think, at 15% a year since then. And people think, oh, that sounds quite good because in their mind, they're thinking the last two or three years, things have gone up that much. It's like, no, you get a calculator, go 1.15 to the power of 20 and have a look at the number and, and you go, Jesus. I mean, so the, but the funny thing is this fund, I think, has only got, I think it's $160 million in assets. My friend here who runs his own successful fund business said to me that, because they look at you, they just look at you and they're going, but that doesn't, that rather than be impressed and ask more questions, go, well, that doesn't make sense because he couldn't have that, that kind of size assets because if he'd, if he'd done that well for that long, why is the fund so small? Because it's one of the best performing funds I've never heard of. I said, yeah, exactly. That's the thing. There, there are these, there really are these, these this investment styles that really do well work. I mean, Derek don't want to jinx anything, but they're so un- uh, they're so psychologically uncomfortable, unusual, hard to explain, mm. no tidy narrative that people just don't buy or they just don't – when they pay, when they have the good years, people have missed it or then they have three or four bad years, people, it, people get out. It's, it's very uncomfortable to live real time with your own money in these strategies. So people listening now might go, ooh, ooh I'll have a look and I'll have a look and they might buy because it has a good couple of years. But then you, you, you live for two or three years of it doing nothing while the S&P maybe goes up 50%. Most people just bail, they leave. So you have hardly anyone. I think he, he must probably has n- no one who's been in with him since the very beginning, the whole way. And I think if you have a bit of exposure to the trend followers and a bit of exposure to the value, guys, you, you, you'll be fine over time. And, and the most important part of value investing, which I think is not the way it's sold, but is more important than its track record, is it's, it's not that even if, it, even if value investing had not done as well as another style, 
the most impressive thing is it's got a much lower risk of permanent capital loss. That's the key for me. It's, it's not that it's, do, it's done well in a real returns. It's that you're, the probability of you permanently losing money is lower. And there's a chap who runs Blue Tower, young guy, Blue Tower Capital Management in America, I think it is. And he did a, he did a study about what, what happened, what was the best strategy to survive in Japan. So there's a phenomenal crash. And for your listeners, you need, don't get too scared about the Japanese example because it, they did start 90, in, from the late, late 90s at a... So late 80s at a ridiculously high PE multiple, like not, I mean, nothing like we have today in the West. It's not as they started off from a far higher valuation. So their crash was understandably more severe than anything I think is realistically going to happen with us anyway. But he said a simple old-fashioned value strategy in Japanese stocks, you'd have done just fine. You wouldn't have, you wouldn't have made a lot of money, but you would not have had this 80, 90% drawdown in stocks that they did. So, but, and that's a country where they had a phenomenal bear market. So all the news headlines or every different Japanese prime minister, every stupid policy crisis they had, it wouldn't have meant, you didn't need to worry about all that stuff. So you've had been a sensible value investor the whole way through and you've had a decent trend following portfolio of the non, I don't know how technical to get with you or boring to get with you, but you, you, don't, want to, you don't want to buy the trend followers who are the ones that um, try to manage their volatility down because the problem with trend following is they just they don't try to make a guess about what will or won't work. They simply buy or sell whatever looks like it's about started to go up or started to go down. It, it sounds so childishly simple, but that really is what they do. The problem is that most of those buyers or sellers will turn out to be false starts. They'll have to stop. They have mechanical stop losses. So if it doesn't continue to go up, they'll sell it. And they realize a small loss. There's lots of small losses. But then when it goes in their favor, they tend to have huge wins. And the cool thing with that strategy is it tends to do very well in years when normal markets do very badly. So a lot of people, like the absolute return funds in the UK, like Ruffer, for example, they will tend to, from what I can see, pay away for portfolio insurance. And then they'll tell you how clever they were earlier this year, because in February, March, whenever it was, they say the hedges protect the portfolio. Well, they did, but you're, but you keep paying. They keep paying away premiums to ensure the portfolio doesn't fall as much in those periods when the market falls. But the thing is, yeah, but net net, you're going to be paying away that premium every single year. So your total returns are just going to be lower than they would otherwise be for the pleasure of having a smoother price return, which makes investors feel more comfortable. But you are going to be. Lo- lowering total returns, whereas trend following is not insurance like that. It, it by itself, as I mentioned by the earlier fund example, can do very well and give you equity-like returns yeah. over time. The this... problem is that the funds you can think, when you think of the trend following funds in your head now, maybe Mann and those kind of people in Winton, they, they're huge. And the problem with the really huge ones is they, they cannot I, mathematically. And I think it's David Harding. I think he's a lovely, I don't know him personally, but I think he's a lovely guy, very honest and he tells you you can't possibly make the returns going forward, but people, I think, I think it's just, they think that's another clue to buy it. But they're huge; they cannot deliver going forward. I think what they've done I in think, the past. I think what you what you're touching on here, Jonathan, is is something that we I've started to appreciate hugely over the last few years, which is there are two types of fund manager. There are asset managers who do the best thing for their for their clients, and and they typically have most, if not all, of their own money in their fund. And then there are asset gatherers. Who are simply interested in getting enormous because that makes the most money because they they earn ad valorem fees and the trick 
is to try and be able to distinguish between the two. It's not a value. I'm not being making a kind of moral or ethical judgment. I'm simply saying there are two types of businesses and the kind of funds that we want to invest in for ourselves and for our clients, they're all small. And because they're small, they're likely to give better performance. End of story. I think what's also interesting from what you've said about um, trend following funds, I mean, my coming from a technical background, teaching people technical analysis from you know the early 90s, it's it's exactly what what I've gone through in showing people how you can make a decision based upon technical analysis, which is what trend following is all about. It's just that's all you're trying to do as a technical analyst. You're not trying to be clever. You're not trying to to explain anything. You're not saying that you know more about a particular market than anybody else. You're just saying this market is going up. Why is it going up? I don't know. It's just going up. This market is going down. Why is it going down? I don't know. It's just going down. You know, it may stop here and come turn around, but it may also continue a very long way. Risk reward, if you place a trade and mechanically get out when the you know, when your your position goes wrong with a small loss, or you run it when it goes right, over time you will make money. Now how you spot those opportunities can either be complicated, um, and you can do weeks and weeks of research or can be relatively simple by analyzing a chart. Try it and see how you get on. And then when people do it and they realize, actually, they're much better at reading charts and predicting the markets than they ever thought they were, then they understand what technical analysis is about. And I've, I've trained many private investors who would rather be wrong because they th- they think they understand the narrative than be right for a reason that they don't understand. I've got to, I've got to ask Paul a question now because I've got to, I've had, so I can't I shouldn't reveal a name for who I used to work for. You probably find it yourself online or your listeners if they care. But one thing that I have seen recently, and Paul, you uh, you, you need to answer this for me because I, I haven't thought of a good way I can tell when people talk to me about the stuff. Like I'm a, I'm a middle-aged guy, I have a few fairly well-off mates, and they and they you know, and they might pick up that I have some financial background and then they start saying oh yeah I've, uh, I'm, I'm doing this course on a technical trading yeah they give you free money up front but you know and it's apparently guaranteed you can't lose and you just sort of follow the models and it's a very disciplined and mechanical and I try to say and I try to think okay this is, here we are again because I know worked at they have one of the largest online discount brokerages in the world who was that and sorry a friend the... of mine uh, uh... TD well TD Waterhouse okay TD Waterhouse that they but the you, when you see the trading that goes on online by these people so people make the they make the general observation that is true that on average professional money managers don't do a great job so okay that's correct the next step is their error they go oh, therefore I will do better than they will so no 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 the not next necessarily step is you will you will do almost certainly even worse than a professional money manager and then they start looking at private courses and even that like I just self-identified I like the trend following my problem with these guys is they'll, they'll then go well I, I've got a call I can. and I try to say listen guys if this guy is going to take $600 from you whatever it is he charges you this course if he literally can sit at home on his computer and make money trading why does he care about talking to a room full of middle-aged boring farts in Dublin or wherever and tell you how to make money and I don't and the thing is they look at me like oh well you know you're just another voice Jonathan which is true and I'm going to do this program anyway. And you think that most of these people, I just don't think should be doing this trading by themselves. So why, I just worry that most people who decide to start trading themselves probably shouldn't do it. They, you, 
you can create infinite narratives and chart. There's, there's a humorous uh, trend line recently where someone's drawn a trend line on a Twitter thing saying, oh, here's my arbitrary trend line. And if it goes, I, I, I was wrong, and if it goes up, I was right. It, it, it's almost, you can never really be wrong with because you can shifting the time, make the scale logarithmic, change a 200 moving day average to 50, or you yeah, can keep on fiddling. Yeah, but that's, that's kidding yourself. With an infinite that's, that's, variety of... That's kidding yourself. The, the point is with, with teaching, uh, you know, I teach not, I don't teach private investors anymore. I, and I only teach professionals. And so people who trade for a living um, and dealing rooms. So that that's my background. I have to relearn, I have to reteach them what they've been, well, not reteach them, but undo what they learn in economics because they go into a dealing room and try and make money and, and they find that, oh, lo and behold, economics doesn't work. So that that's what I do. But the, the, the point of, yeah, some of these people aren't going to teach you anything that's worth worth it. But by the same token, you're not looking at the other side of it where they may lose a fortune and more um, not knowing what uh, or how to approach the market. So it's it's if they spend six hundred dollars and save sixty thousand dollars, then it's then it's worth it. They they may it may even just convince them that it's not for them. So without talking about without knowing anything about what other people are doing, because there are people out there who have no idea about how to teach technical analysis, and they teach you all about moving averages and oscillators and stuff that isn't going to help you. Um, and you know, or, or they may teach you well and they may show you exactly what it is and they may tell you exactly that it is very, it's not as easy as you might think. You need a lot of money. You need a lot of time. You need a lot of patience. It's going to go wrong. You've got to be able to, like trend following funds, stick out the bad times for the good times. If you, if that's not for you, give your money to somebody else. So it really, it really does, it really does depend what they, what they're trying to achieve. Now, if there's a single black box system, you're going to fall into the same problem. Is it any better than someone else's black box system? And why should you pay for it? And it, it could just be a very simple moving average system that you could create yourself, like a moving average crossover system. I, I remember very well towards the end of the 90s, going into 2000s, there were many black box systems that were being sold. And a black box system is basically where you just take the signals for people who are not sure. Uh, about what that is, um, you just blindly take the signals that the market tells you or the system tells you to without knowing what's behind it. And they could report, you know, huge profits because over the past few years, the Dow had gone, been going skyrocketing and, and you know, legitimately published that they'd made, you would have made money with that system. Then we hit 2000 and everything fell apart. And so the, the, the point, the market's an, an organic system. It's moving. The every, there's so many moving parts with every single stock and every single market that, you, you know, no one system is going to work all the time. But, oh, you know, in the short term, but in the long term, some, some things will. It's just that people won't stick out for long enough. So the bottom line is I see it in a, in a very similar way to any profession that somebody wants to be good at. You know, if, if, you're, if you're interested in making money, then actually – learning about the markets um, isn't for you. You've got to be passionate about the markets themselves. You know, you've got to be into it. It's Because if you want to make money, you could become a brain surgeon or do something else. There's a, there's an FT, either an FT or Bloomberg columnist that, that I remember has been tweeting quite a bit over the last probably year or two years about a, a vomiting camel formation. Yeah, yeah. Just, yeah. just quite right. a good one. And on, on the same note, or on a very similar note, there's a, there's a great site, and I think it's actually now a book by a guy called Tyler Vegan, uh, and it's called Spurious Correlations. And I've got a chart in front of me, and it's, it's it, this is these are from US statistics. Number of people who drowned by falling into a swimming pool 
correlates with films Nicolas Cage appeared in. <laughs> well, that, that's uh, what's the old expression there? That's uh, correlation well, is correlation in cause, and causation. Are yeah, not, not the same thing. Yeah, just just one one observation from me, and we'll, well, I think we should touch just about the the, the current market dynamic to, to round things off. But just before we get to that, I was at a a little uh, conference seminar event on Thursday, uh, hosted by a guy called Van Tharp, who some people may know. He's actually a uh, again, someone who teaches uh, trading, uh, and he was in—I think he's in the very first Market Wizards book. So yes. he's a bit of a bit of a celebrity. But I, I asked him. I, I got to ask ask the first question when he'd finished his presentation, and my question was along the lines of, "Do you think that QE and ZERP, zero interest rate policies, have fundamentally sort of changed the the way markets trade, the way the way markets uh, are, are behaving?" And his response, and it was a bit of a bit of a blow bit of a shock to the system. He said, well, I think that's just a narrative. And to that point, it's something you touched on earlier, Paul. Uh, now, almost all of my time is, is dedicated to trying to avoid being suckered into narratives. And the people who are most spending most time on this are basically mainstream media. So I'm trying to cut out mainstream media because the narratives are all wrong. They're all stupid. I cut but that out in the 90s, you see. I don't, I, don't, yeah. I don't listen to it. And if you do, you just look at it like EastEnders. It's entertainment. You know, yeah. this is what yeah. they think is important, but is it really? Um, there is really no narrative other than what the market's doing. Yeah. Um, but, but to go back to what Jonathan was saying, you, you can look at things in a very complicated way or a very simple way. And I, perhaps it's just the way I think, but I don't... It, it's It's fact that all the European stock markets are going down. It wasn't until a few months ago that the German stock market was going, it was one of the only ones that wasn't going down. Look at it now. You know, what is that? It's just falling into line, isn't it? Look at the US market. That wasn't falling. Now it is. So that's the last one. That's the last piece of the puzzle. John, Jonathan, from your perspective as a, as a sort of an active investor, how how are you positioned at the moment without going into specifics necessarily what what's your tech, what's your read on the current situation well so there's so much to unpack in the things you mentioned there but trying to keep it tidy <laughs> so i know it so something that uh paul's going to touch on there is it, so something to mention is with these te the technical trading a very interesting thing happened with the trend the trend the turtles who are the original trend following guys they had, they had a bunch of guys one guy had a bet with a friend it wasn't actually a bet but he it sold it was a bet that he could he could teach people to be uh, trainer followers from random walks of life who are interested and they could all make money doing this and this friend said no you know you can't and lo and behold he did and they called the turtles and there's a whole book about it but the problem is that and, the, and, and the film trading places oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yes, historically accurate movie that one. But uh, <laughs> that, that is that also that movie is amazingly not dated. It's I mean, brilliant. Of course, I always recommend it. It's fantastic. It's like Ferris Bueller. Like some of the movies you watch, like Pink Panther. For some reason, that's just not fun anymore. You, it's really sad that I don't know why that is. But anyway, I never thought it was at the time, to be honest. But yeah, but yeah, I want trading places. I loved I watched it. it. Yeah, turn those machines back on. Yeah, trading places, brilliant. <laughs> Yes, my favourite scene is the one with the gorilla in the cage, but that's probably not safe for. <laughs> <laughs> but the the problem uh -huh. is, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the problem is people didn't follow the rules. So if let, yes. even if you get someone in front of you and exactly. say, just do when the signal, they'll be going, well, you've got to be kidding. I'm not buying now. Are, exactly. are you crazy? So no, the system says do it. And the point is for me, and this is relevant, you you need to be a bit of a minute. 
mini psychologist because you need to look at yourself. Like, what kind of a guy are you? So, for example, even though I came from the background I did, I realized really early, Jonathan, what are the odds that you, Jonathan, are going to be a better investor than the best fund managers you can find with real live track records you can actually check, not just some talking head on telly, like a guy with a real track record. And I just realized, you know, I, and then I've, it's going to be small, right? Unless I have a massive head on me, I, I'm not going to be better investing the best fund managers I can find. And then I started being realizing a lot of people we listen to, they maybe they're right, maybe they're not right, maybe they've got good track records. I don't actually know. And then this thing Taleb said, Nassim Taleb, he said, you know, I don't tell people what to do. I, I will tell them if I want to what I am doing myself. And And it's very tidy. So if you think about that, if you invest only with people who have all their own money, or, or, or meaningfully most of their money, because in the UK people don't realize how much fund managers are worth. So if a fund manager in a UK fund has got a few hundred thousand pounds in one of his funds, you know, the newspapers go, they think, oh, it's great, he's got skin in the game. It's like, no, he doesn't. The guy's a multi, multi-millionaire. Like, he needs to have millions and millions in that thing for him to even really start meaningfully getting a bit sweaty about it all. But you, if you find people who have all their own money in a fund, it's been around through at least one market crisis. So you can see how did you do under live fire conditions? Because last five, ten, last five or ten years, you've really not been tested that hard at all. Then you think, well, okay, they're, they're, those guys are, are they're real. They're the real deal. Yeah. And or they, or they could be. There'll be some false positives in there, but it's unlikely. So I tend to have. 80% with long, long only or long short value guys, like who are the, the same sort of thing as Tim has alluded to, very small, small assets under management. It's almost a rule. Like look at, like I think no guy, no farm manager, or near, apart from of course Buffett, but he's different. He's running an insurance company and all the rest of it. But if you, if you pick someone like David Einhorn to be mean and pick a guy who had a really bad run, his track record is was excellent in the early years when he was really small. He's now managing a huge sum of money, and his track record is very bad. And I'm not saying that, though, therefore, that's a rule, but it is almost a rule that investing in any fund, once it has become big, regardless of its prior track record, that the go-forward returns are nearly never good. So your base rate is to expect nothing special once it gets past a billion or two billion, or in fact, much smaller than that if you can. So I tend to just stick with those guys, and the trend follows. I... I, I tend to stick with, stick, stick with them. And the benefit is I don't have to tr try and time things myself because yeah. I'm letting them do that. But I would say, however, because you have asked me, I, I'm seeing stuff in Southeast Asia that looks great. Like for, for, if you just take your mind away from the whole, Jonathan, yes, but the Fed's raising rates, and oh my God, and the QE and blah, blah. I found that narrative totally unhelpful. I mean, people, the kind of people that I hear going about QE and, I remember the same people saying, oh, QE is terrible, it's going to be a disaster. But now they're going, oh, the only reason the stock market's high because of QE. It's like, well, listen, you're an investor, right? If that was so obvious, why didn't you go balls deep in the S&P several years ago rather than moaning about it and complaining about how a terrible idea? If you're in a, you can moan about it morally and ethically, think it's not right. You're misallocating financial resources to where it shouldn't. Okay, sure, that's one part of it. But the way you chose to act, this is a pragmatic part was to stick with gold or just waiting for it all to go wrong was an error. If, if it's so obvious that the whole QE policy was going to lead to massive financial price inflation, why didn't you ride it yourself? That's my skin in the game part. Like you didn't, not, not you guys, but I mean, the, most people who talk about it now, about oh, when they reverse QE, you wait and see, it's going to be terrible. Everything's going to collapse. Like, well, I don't know, guys. I mean, you, you didn't forecast it right, the, what the effect of QE would be 
for the markets going forward at the time. And now we're told with raising rates will be catastrophe. It's like, well, I don't know. And I don't, I don't think it's actionable or reliable to trade on that. But I can tell you, when you read the newsletters, which are great, at these small Southeast Asian managers, I had one for a small cap Hong Kong guy came out last week. And he's asking investors for more money. So I can hear you rolling your eyes going, yeah, sure. But yeah. I have noticed when you, when you read these value letters over time, I tell you, it's been a really good signal historically. And you can read them back, so don't edit them. You've got to read them in time order, so you don't just look at the latest one, obviously. Around two, it's quite a good test is when they start saying in 2009, 10, listen, guys, this is um, – you can tell by their letters it's just, there's, a, there's, too much, there's too much for them to try to choose which idea is the best idea. And more recently, it's become you recognize from the tone of the letters that people are heavy, very heavy in cash, or the long short guys are very much market neutral, or they're only looking at special spin off situations. It's all, you can tell they've picked her of every damn thing they can, and they've got very little direction. That's a general clue, which is true right now, to stay away. Or a worry for me is when they start saying, actually, I kind of like Facebook, like now. No, 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 no. Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a flag that you've now become, you know, you're now becoming pro-tech now as a value guy. I think that's an error. Well, or Buffett's just the, done that. I thought that was really strange. I thought that was very interesting, Buffett turning into, you know, putting money in Apple at this, at this late stage. Yeah. But, you know, it, I guess it just remains to be seen whether it'll just be much, much higher or, or reverse. It's certainly done very well since he's done it, but it, it ain't over yet because most tech seems to be turning down. But, yeah, you make some good points there, Jonathan. I'll give you one teaser. One teaser. There's a company called, and I'll tell you the name of the fund. They're closed, so you can't do anything about it. But NT Asian Discovery uh, sent out a letter recently and had a list of all their holdings. And the number one holding that they mentioned was some tech company that I have never heard of in Hong Kong. But it was just it just makes you realize that people don't talk about these things. So this company is the partner for, for Amazon, the Amazon Web Services in the region. And so you think, and, and the, but the PE of this thing is, I think, seven. I know PE is one simple metric and we can make it very involved, but there's no debt or hardly any debt. I think it's, a, it's PE is around seven. Dividend yield is, I don't know, it's pretty substantial and trading at barely book. And you're just thinking, if that was a U.S. listed stock, this the you know, Amazon Web Services, which is the thing we're supposed to be so excited about about Amazon, there's it, it just no way you'd be trading those valuations because you look at U.S. tech and where it's valued, and you look at stuff like that in Hong Kong, and you're thinking, despite all the macro concerns we've touched on this call, that that you need, I think, to focus on like what is the price that you're paying now, what is the value you're getting, what is the company doing? If you if you've got any listeners who are interested, just look at look at. Southeast Asia at the moment, or maybe Hong Kong. So I think I think a lot of a uh, lot of um, if you look at absolute valuation levels, and you didn't know where we were in the cycle, and you landed from Mars today, and you didn't know the whole journey, and you just looked at the prices and valuations, it 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 would you wouldn't say at all, oh they're expensive. Very I, interesting. I, Far from it. Well, Peter, Peter Kundil, who's a Canadian, who was a Canadian value investor, said there's always something to do. Yeah, there and is. There's a, there's a guy that, that we follow, James Hay, who's out in the, the, the region that Jonathan's just mentioned. And he says, he, he about two years ago, two or three years ago, he boiled it down very nicely. He said, look, forget all the macro stuff, because you can debate that till the cows come home and, and come to no meaningful conclusion. What he's trying to do is simply find the biscuit maker who's trying to flog more biscuits than his competitor down the road. <laughs> it's as straightforward as that. And if, you've got, if you can find that guy and his shares are on a sufficiently attractive valuation, job done. Jonathan, we've got to ask you before, before we wrap up, do you think there'll be a time when you'll want to get into gold? And what, what's your opinion on cryptocurrencies? 
So my, oh God, that, the gold thing is such a big subject. Uh, how do I summarize that? I'll tell you what, I'll tell you. I don't think Tim was there, but we, remember our mutual friend in Switzerland, Tim? It, we, yeah. I don't think you were there. At guard, uh, there was guard, a guard of Ali asked a few friends round and investors for a little round table thing in the Swiss mountains. It's very romantic. And at this time, all of us gold guys felt very clever. I think it must be 2011 or 12. We were right at the top of everything. So 2011 like, was the top. So, yes, yeah, so we all felt like we were super clever. But, you know, it, I don't think we were, actually. We were just nervous people who had a lot of gold and they'd gone up a lot and stocks gone down. So <laughs> then he's going around the table. But the point is, you know, going around the table, what are, you, what are your views? And everyone's coming out with some variation of the EU is going to collapse. And, oh, my God, it's terrible. Debt's not this art, blah, blah, blah. And it got around to this guy. He's called the Spanish Warren Buffett. Uh, he used to run Besta Invest, a Spanish fund, and he's now got his own fund called Cobas Asset Management in Spain. And he said, listen, I'm Spanish. You guys are all English and American. You think your country's a socialist and you just – because Austrians get too carried away with – they're not very good at shades of gray. Like if it's not free market, then it's just socialist, and, which is obviously not correct. Mm. He said, I, I am Spanish. And we actually have a socialist government, and we and our former colonies they have had, as famously, uh, a series of uh, communism, socialism, currency collapses, hyperinflations, and so on. So I have studied this a lot, and he's an Austrian guy too. And he said, but I don't know any reliable method for timing gold or Swiss francs or bonds, and then getting back in again when it's all calmed down again. Like in Venezuela today, what what would you actually do right now? And he said, I think. If you list that, this is a really good part for me. So if you list down all the reasons you're supposed to hold, go to any gold bug website or they'll say, well, it's real asset. No central bank's printing it. It's no one else's liability. It's limited in supply. It's thousands of years of history, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so we've got all those in our head, fine. He said, but you have the similar properties and equities, right? If you buy a, a, a company, shares in a company without a lot of debt, that's maybe got diversified re revenues globally that sells you know, some kind of durable consumer boring something or other. Like that's, that's a real asset too, right? It's a real asset. It has, it's, it's actually growing, which gold isn't growing. It has a lot of the properties you want from gold that are not currency-like. And he says, so he thinks the most reliable method is you buy a good basket of those kind of things and just hold them and, and go for the ride. He said, because gold won't be without volatility, which was true, right? Gold can have long multi-year drawdowns doing nothing. Of course, it can, as can stocks. But he said, at least with, at least with gold, you, you know, with equities, you're not forced to time in or out. You just hold them and ride it. And he said, that's the most, and I, I think that's true. But I would say with gold, though, it doesn't mean you don't own any gold. I do think there is a whole category of risks never discussed why you would own gold. Like, what, like did you see the article in Bloomberg recently about the tiny microchips that the Chinese are supposedly sticking in all our yeah. equipment that they've been selling us for years? Like, I think if that's true, that is... One of those stories, let's pick that one as a live example. If that's really true, and Chinese are literally are sticking tiny chips on all of our products that all our banks now have and all the rest of it. If you think about your savings accounts, like really, you don't know for sure how robust the system is. I mean, I'm pretty sure it's very robust, but I think the odds of a cyber attack and suddenly your accounts being deleted or they're gone or some, who knows, some kind of issue like that, or a Jeremy Corbyn government, let's say, coming in and confiscating the wealth, when his very various policies fail and he gets more and more desperate and you go through one or two nasty, very left-wing government periods, you, you know, you might be grateful you actually held some physical, you know, some valuable paintings or nice 
classic car or less 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 sexily a few gold sovereigns, which I don't know if you know they're they're tax free. Yes. If you're if you're in the UK, because there's no capital gains, because technically it's still currency. Yeah. I mean, I think there are those reasons. Also, when you die, most likely none of these ghastly things will happen. So I'm not. I don't bet that those things will happen. But when you die, your kids open the family safe and go, Oh God, look, here's a few crew grounds, Dad. Dad left for me. What a weirdo. But it. I just think there are, there's a different kind of risk you, you're insuring against holding something portable and valuable that is very unlikely you'll never, ever need it. But I think it's – because the problem is if you now go and buy gold as an ETF, I think that decision is a decision not to own other real productive assets. And if you think, oh, no, but I'm going to time it, I would just say to your listeners, and please correct me, I would love to be proved wrong, I don't know one person that meaningfully – I don't mean tiny amounts, I mean properly own gold – that ever meaningfully sold any gold in the, in the last seven or eight years, not, not one. In fact, they've been buying it the whole way down. And I just think that's a clue. Like if they, and I'm just from a humble point of view, I, I, if they can't do it, I, I don't think I can either, right? In fact, I, I sold my, my funds with this, my Swiss friend, not because I was clever, but because I started to just realize that I, I just got a feeling that, they only look at the, they're just only looking at the negatives all the time. Things were changing. They were recovering. They wasn't recovering like they wanted. The policies weren't what they wanted. But, you know, it's, it's still recovering, guys. Like, you, you just admit it. And they, they wouldn't. And that's the investment banking background I had I think was useful because it does make you, you just, you're forced to accept, look, these things are not really panning out as badly as everyone said. They are improving. Just admit, just admit it, right? Like, you still have people over here in Ireland saying, well, house prices rallied enormously, but, hey, they're still a long way below the peak. It's like, yeah, but, mate, they're, they're rallying, right? They're rallying hard. So, just admit it. It is rallying. It's gone up a load. You've missed it. Suck it up and, you know, change your mind if you're wrong. I mean, it's really important to see that in people you invest with as well. You need to see not fake humility because that's become a sales pitch now about how humble you are and telling everyone how humble you are to be here and humbled in this and humbled in that. But you want to see them actually have made a real error because we all do and genuinely talk about it and what they've learned. I think that's a really good tell for me that you've got an honest person on the other end. And crypto, I think... I think you let, let, let the market at it. I mean, let, let's see. Like, I think something will win. But I think, again, I don't know. Like, is it going to be Bitcoin 1, Bitcoin Cash, S3? Who knows, right? I have no clue. But I, I definitely smell a lot of the gold bug stuff there, the same pattern where you'll have people making a long list of why it's absolutely imperative when the system needs it. So, I, of course, I get the free, you know, free market money aspect for sure. But I just think the whole blockchain security aspects are overplayed because I think blockchain will be useful for all sorts of other things. But honestly, how many people genuinely worry about the record keeping of their, sa- of their savings account? Like I've lived in all these different countries all over the world and I've never had a, a problem with stuff. It, it, in all the different accounts I've had, everything seems to reconcile. There's never been an issue. If there has been an issue with some, you call them up, they fix it. So I don't think people are going, oh God, this is a crying need. We definitely need some way to keep our information safe for god's sake look how bad it's been historically well that's just not true right it's not unless you're a crook and i'm not saying that you need to be a crook to own these things but i think they they try to pick every possible supporting argument they can but when you take take a step back and go what do you what what problem you what real need are you actually solving for and if it's a free market money well i keep thinking you know there's one out there right now called gold right and then the, the arguments against you will be, well, it's different because gold is, and then all the differences between gold and Bitcoin. Like, well, no, but the supply of gold is that no one's going to debate which version of gold will win. It's gold, period. There's no threat of some smart ass inventing a new um, techno- te- te- 
technology that will ruin or replace or do something we can't predict, an unknown unknown. And then you can have credit cards now linked to decimals of the gold you want to hold in a secure allocated gold account. So I just, I'm not, I just don't see this as much there there as is being sold. But I think it's an experiment. I, I think it's fascinating. I, I, I hope something comes out of it that I can't foresee that is really cool and maybe does nudge things in the direction of a, a free money. But I also, you know, you need to be worldly wise. Central banks in the world are not going to be saying, yeah, sure, let's replace a dollar, um, bring on Bitcoin. Uh, of course not. That would be catastrophe for the financial situation of governments worldwide. So I, I think you need to be a bit realistic. That it is, I don't think it can ever be too big something, for that reason. There's something, that, there's a media pick that I recommended a few podcasts ago called Attack of the 50-Foot Blockchain, which is, uh, I don't know if you've read it, but it's... Um, I actually, I just read the the, the sample because it, it had everything in it. If you want to check that out, it makes a lot of the arguments that, you, that you've just well, made. Can I, can I, can I mention, mention one, one more thing and then I'll start, start rabbiting on? But another thing is I've learned, um, I think I've learned, is the more you do this, the older you get. And I don't, I don't mean old and decrepit. That's, just, that's another issue for another, for another podcast. But it's more like you get a long list, a longer and longer. I think the what, I think what's the difference being smart because i think it's really clear you get there are great investors who are not that smart and i'm not being i'm not being a, a prick but there are some super in fact the most intelligent people i know is a class of people in the investing world are macro guys and macro as you know is a famously bad asset class as a whole but they're the most intelligent people you can and they can talk you logically into any kind of outcome and that, i think that's almost a problem they've got but i think the, the, the wisdom, wisdom, whatever that word's supposed to mean, the difference is I think it's you get a longer and longer list of what not to do. It's like a, don't buy a fund that's got too, you know, the assets are too big or don't buy a fund where the guy doesn't have all his own money in it because if he doesn't have his own money in his own fund, then damn, why would you, if he doesn't believe in it himself, why would you give your, your family money to him? It's just a more, and you add to the list of you know, what, what, what not to do is, is, is part of it. And also the other one, which sounds really childish but i think being childlike is quite a good quality in some ways is if you I don't agree. know just say I, I i don't know like i don't know it's a yeah. big world like, what will happen bitcoin i don't know and you know what i don't think anyone knows there are some interesting things about it and there are some things that are definitely being oversold and then also i the big one for me in my head the big bubble is that's shouting at me is i don't think it solves a lot that is not already solved by let's say these clever gold accounts i'm not saying you should go and do this but if you if that's what really worries you then just go and buy a gold stick sixty thousand pounds in gold a gold back credit card account because people come up with stupid arguments going oh you can't buy your shopping with gold well you, you can actually you just haven't looked very hard you can stick your money into a gold back credit card and you go to tesco's or whatever you do and you just pay for it and the, the button will come up with sterling and you you pay for it and it'll deduct 0.3 ounces of gold or whatever it is it, it is it's there now, but people in the Bitcoin community, they surprisingly don't. That's what I find funny is well, you also need to look for these people in honesty terms about do they talk about the good points? Like, do they strong man their, their adversary's point of view? And you rarely see Bitcoin guys, in my experience, talking about the good aspects of, let's say, gold, which is weird, right? Because that's the obvious elephant in the room to me. Moving on from there, I think we should take a, take a look at media picks. What do you think, Tim? Yeah, let's go for it. Okay, well, so what's what's yours for this week? Um, because we're, I mean, autumn is my favourite season. Halloween is my favourite festival. As we as we approach the witching hour, um, I thought I'd go for a, a fright film. So mine Ooh. is The Babadook, uh-huh. uh, 2014 film, which I believe you've seen, Paul. I have indeed. Very good film. Very have, good. have you seen it, Jonathan? No. 
Are you a horror fan? So, so I, so I thought I was, but I watched something <laughs> with my son the other day. I watched this Netflix one where the 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 lady, she was old, she was an older lady on, um, oh God, what was that movie with Helen Mirren? And she's she's starring in some new Netflix horror movie. Oh, but not I seen quite, it. I, I like horror movies being more suspense and psychological but this is just extreme gore like oh, chopping yeah. people's faces up oh and like, yeah i hate extreme, that stuff. it's like i can't that's not horror that's no. just how much gore can yeah. you well in in which case i think you might like the babadook so i won't oh, go good. into too much detail but but effectively uh it it, it it comes on the back of a short film but i think you've also seen paul monster yeah and the the, the basic premise is you've got uh a mum uh, a, a widowed mum and uh, a, a small boy, her, her uh, son that she's, she's she's raising on her own, and it just charts. I suppose it just kind of charts her mental disintegration. Uh, it's it's a very psychological film. Oh God! Uh, and uh, and the seeing the short film Monster actually is quite, in a sense, is quite. Maybe you want to see Monster second rather than first because the the, the short film Monster is. is Part part of it is um, you think, well, is she the monster? And then you think, actually, is he the monster? Uh, as in, you know, little monsters and all the rest of it. But it's 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 almost like a kind of uh, uh, a flip side version of uh, The Shining, except with a mother instead of the, the sort of Jack Nicholson father figure. But it's uh, it's it's a very scary film. Fantastic, fantastic. Perfect, perfect Halloween viewing. Mine is uh, um, well. There's two. There's the BBC, the bank that almost broke Britain, which I think if we start talking about this, the podcast might go on for another hour. But uh, it's about the story of of how RBS nearly broke, you know, brought down Britain. But you know, we all know that that's that's a huge simplification of what actually happened. Um, that there was wider problems, but it's still a very interesting documentary and worth revisiting for the just for the, the sake of people who didn't you know the general public who didn't really know what was going on behind the scenes and just saw the headlines at the time and then saw how it was all re- resolved so the bank that almost broke britain um on the uh, bbc iplayer you can catch that but something a, a, a little more uh, relevant to everybody i think is that something called the placebo experiment with uh, dr michael mosley and what i've what i found fascinating is a few years ago i saw a documentary on um on this subject where they had these cyclists and they were going round what it, whatever it's called, I think it's the velodrome, and they, they went out and they did their fastest times and then they gave them these tablets and they said, right, these are special you know, drug-enhancing, performance-enhancing drugs and you're going to go round in your best time after taking these tablets. But, you know, of course, they're very, you know, very expensive and you know, gave them the whole story about what they were. And they went out and they beat their previous times and... There was nothing in them. It was literally a placebo. What was more fascinating was in this documentary was explaining how your brain can make physiological changes to your body. There was a a cross-country skier and he was given the same, inverted commas, tablets, but they studied his body and found that his body was actually producing more oxygen than it normally would, just because the brain thought it could. I mean, I, I was just utterly fascinated by it. Now, you can't get that original documentary anymore, but Dr. Michael Mosley has obviously picked up the baton and made a very watchable and very interesting um, 
documentary about placebos and done what I like about him is he does actually test these things and it's a very rigorous experiment that he performs on people who've got chronic back pain so I would I'd recommend that as well that'll be in the links the placebo experiment so um, given your interest in all things health and well-being Jonathan I thought you might like that no that's really interesting because I I, even though you can tell I'm English, I think I've become very, I became very North Americanized in what I look at. I don't, I don't know why. So I look at, I follow. I think something we haven't talked about. I think Pog, one of those things where you just think it's much more enormous than everybody realizes is is just podcasting. I mean, podcasts are fantastic. And where you tell people that, it's like this Twitter. They look at you, oh Twitter, you're on Twitter. Oh, and they assume you're looking at Kim Kardashian's bum or something. It's like no, of course, of course I'm not. It's like saying Twitter's bad. It's like saying a library's bad. Or it depends what books you choose to put in your shelves, right? Like Twitter depends who you follow. And the same with podcasting. Oh, podcasting. It's not just people just talking crap on the internet. Like, well, yeah, but it depends. So there's a guy called Joe Rogan. And so oh, when yes. I heard, I, yeah, so I heard about Joe Rogan. And but I don't know if you, maybe you did, but he, he went on the other day about how, because he's complaining about mainstream media, right? He's a knucklehead. He looks like a bit of a wrestler. I think he did jujitsu and he interviewed, most of his interviews are comedians or, wrestling dudes or psychedelics and you're thinking okay jonathan where are we going with this but then he will have really interesting people who he who like there's a woman called in fact this might be my media pick then there's dr Rhonda patrick she's a obviously she's a woman I mean, she's like a really pragmatic lady who's um tried to just whittle down not just correlate because with this whole nutrition area or placebos and she tries to find what's the explanation like not just the cause like what what explains why that does work or why that doesn't work and she has a i think the thing is they're very long form these podcasts they're two or three hours but they are so popular like i think he has more viewers he said than i think all the mainstream channels and television in america or something mad wow. this is the guy and i think he probably gets and there's someone said you he makes 50 grand an episode just from the various sponsorships and stuff so it's a big deal and people and jordan peterson i think became very famous for many reasons, but one of them is because Joe Rogan started interviewing a few times. But that that's a, that, that particular uh, podcast might dovetail with yours because they talk about this placebo effect and how people initially thought, well, if it's a placebo, pff. but she said, no, it, it, it's not just a placebo. It, it you physically, things change inside you. And I think the NHS is even now considering potentially prescribe, prescribing placebos, which sounds ridiculous. You think, well, just, there's, there's nothing in them. It's like homeopathy. It's like, yeah, but... It, it, it can actually work, but it's a, it's just fascinating how the mind. We all we all know the old saying about you know, you know mind over matter, but really there's there's something in it, and it's it's fascinating podcast to listen to. But my my media pick was going to be I was trying to be pretentious and pretend I'm really watching worthy things, but I did genuinely watch a documentary that I hardly ever watch them, but it was a called a, a journey in the danger zone Iraq because I don't know why I, I clicked on it, but it is on BBC. I, I presume it's your BBC iPlayer over there. But he, he was a soldier in, Af in Iraq in 2003, and he's gone back. And there's something about the way they described it. They said, oh, you know, what, what's, what's Mosul? What's, what's Basra? What, what's it like now? And you think, yeah, that's pretty interesting, because we don't know. Yeah. I, I have no idea. I don't know what it's actually like. So he, and he's a, he's a Middle Eastern kind of looking guy. So I, put, I don't know. So I thought, oh, he'll be safe over there. It's not like some white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed dude wandering around the streets. Because that's how ignorant I am. I don't know if you, would you be safe or not if I went. I don't know. And he just walks around the, the, the towns and villages you and me have heard of, and some look absolutely fine, and some look like hell on earth. And there's some incredibly moving parts, like the one bit I actually, it's unusual for me, I'm crying on where they have a, 
well, I won't start, but it is, yeah, to have a, a man and a woman have a, a school for disabled kids. And ISIS were you're strapping bombs to these disabled kids and, and, no. and sending them into place to blow them. Yeah, and the people are still there. And you think that these people are like saints. And you think, oh, my God. And then there's, there's a 17-year-old boy there who's acting very strangely. And they're saying, yeah, his parents were killed and butchered in front of him. And you're thinking, oh, my God, this stuff. Yeah. It's, I don't know why. Just, it, sometimes, sometimes you need to really feel it to really mm. think this, this, this really happened. And you're thinking, oh, my God. It's, and it's interesting. It's interesting. And he's not, he's not, there's no political, because you know, the problem is the older we get, especially if you're a lib, libertarian-minded, you, you can't help seeing political stuff in every single documentary, especially the BBC. But this one wasn't like that. There was no kind of agenda and preaching and all that kind of stuff at all. It's just like, I'm a guy, I'm walking around, talking to random people here and there in the streets. And what do they think? And yeah, it was it's very real, I think. Wow. Fantastic. Fantastic. Jonathan, if people wanted to get in touch with you do you have a do you have a twitter handle yeah so i have a i'm on twitter like i'm, I'm not selling anything or doing it and, and no so not, no no I'm, people just so might I'm, find I'm not, yeah 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 so my twitter handle is praxialog so i now have to explain that because people think i'm being pretentious this stupid handle but because of my old job i was told when you set up a gmail account you can't use your name so i happened to be reading <laughs> mises human action and praxeology was some term i was learning about at that time so i just I just I use the handle Praxialog, but now everyone goes, dude, what the hell does Praxialog mean? <laughs> or are you kind of some pseudo philosopher? Like, no, of, of course I'm not. I just I'm stuck with that damn thing now because I can't. <laughs> that, that's and now all the variations of Jonathan Escort have gone. So yeah, could you, say, could you could you not <laughs> make it Praxialog Kim Kardashian's bum? Um, so just oh, a, a quick Bitcoin. a quick a quick, a quick a quick a quick warning for anyone that may be tempted to, and I, I would certainly recommend they do follow Jonathan on Praxialog. The first tweet actually mentions Gödel's theorem for mathematics, so uh -huh. this is not this is not for everybody, I suspect. Oh, so can I mention? Am I allowed to give you another? If if I if I if I give you a book pick, can you are you allowed to? Am I can I, can I mention one of those? And you can yeah uh, yeah sure yeah go for it yeah so so you know how there's this general thought that oh we have so much data big data and we have when we have infinite data infinite computing power we'll figure everything out. And we don't, you know, central planning and we can 42, solve. the answer's 42. <laughs> yeah. Amazing how prescient that guy was in that book, huh? But he, there's a book called The Outer Limits of Reason written. And I'm not, I'm not uh, a math geek, despite what Jim just said, sorry, uh, but, but Tim just said. But The Outer Limits of Reason is written by a guy called Yanofsky. And I can't, it's very readable for just, you know, an educated layperson, but he, t he shows you, he's an MIT professor, he's not some randomer, and he tells you that, look, there are some logical puzzles, like really simple ones, like there's one called the traveling salesman, like if you give a, mm. you need to look it up yourself, it's a simple oh. puzzle, a salesman's got to travel to these different places in America with the least possible routes, very how do you do it? It, but it's insufferable, like it's impossibly complicated. It's like, oh, well, don't worry, we'll have a big computer with a big brain. It's like, no, it's nothing. It's a, logically, there can be answers to things, but they're unsolvable, no matter how much horsepower you, you have. And I think the point of that book is you, you read it and go, okay, well, that doesn't sound that profound, Jonathan. And it's like, no, but I think my, if you think about it with our area here of investing, like, yeah, I mean, investing makes a traveling salesman problem look like a walk in the park. <laughs> but then we have all these very, very clever good, ETFs. Yeah, yeah it's, and you, when you read that, and the good thing with reading something longer than a Twitter handle is you really have a week or so when you read the book to internalize 
wow, so no matter how, in a way it's nice because we're still going to be human and robots won't really replace us in the way we think they will. But it just makes you really get that machines aren't, they, can, they cannot think and do things, that, well, they can, but it is literally limited and it's nothing to do with just faster, bigger, more power, more data. It's, it's, there's a, it's a category mistake to think that we'll just, we'll just figure everything out with more data and more brains. I think I've said that so many times now, you probably no, get the picture. But if you, yeah. if you read it, you realize it's not a religious thing. He's not trying to smuggle any weird views and he's a completely rational mathematical guy saying, cool your jets, that there are limits. There, there are limits to reason. I like that, smuggle any weird views in. That's very, that's very funny. I've never heard that expression before. <laughs> so do you, have you found people doing that to you before in books? Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. Well, because it's because the classic one is if you're like I'm a Catholic. Okay. So and that, so I mean I take, I'm just a normal Catholic. I'm not no, nothing special. Went to normal Catholic schools and all the rest of it, and, and stuck with it. But you're just aware that whenever you read any books that might be on that subject, you'll realize they're going a bit. They're spending a bit too much time on the gaps in what they think the gaps are, or they're just a bit too credulous about. Well, we don't know how. You know, quantum indeterminacy is therefore God. Like, well, no, hang on, hang on a second. Like, I'm a religious guy, but you can't just you can't just pick a difficult part of science and say, well, we don't know how that works. Therefore, Deepak Chopra is right. Like, no, 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 no. Hold, hold on a second. Mm. I'm a rational guy, but it, it, you can't just use vague areas to suddenly jump in and, and therefore, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, therefore, mystic Buddhism is somehow a quantum quantum theory in your head like no 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 fellas hold on it's that's that's not the same thing at all fantastic <laughs> you know yeah yeah definitely agree with you on that fantastic well look jonathan it's been a fantastic podcast thank you so much for all your thoughts and we definitely have to have you on the show again at some point if you agree to that sure i've just got you on air saying it so you know that's uh <laughs> brilliant thank about, about my about my commission it was a one strong flat white that's right yes indeed remember well, yes indeed yeah well we'll get we'll get that to you um but look just thank you so much uh, that's, a, that's a coffee is it yeah yeah <laughs> it's a pretentious thank coffee now that is a pretentious coffee it yes, is indeed I admit, isn't it? I admit that, that sure. that's 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 because there aren't enough options isn't there there's got to be something um something yeah. new but yeah, fantastic, Jonathan. Thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed it. And uh, we hope to you know, have your thoughts again in the future. And uh, Tim, as always, been brilliant. Have a fantastic few weeks and we'll see you at the next Good. podcast. Bye. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.